Hello, Duncan Green here on From Poverty to Power with your weekly roundup of uh, posts and um, stuff. Um, first up on Monday, Maria Fasciolince, my uh, new colleague on From Poverty to Power, put together a list of Power Shifts resources. Her program, the program she's running is called Power Shifts. It's about trying to sort of um, change the nature of power and the imbalances of power, both in the way we talk about development and the topics we cover, and the authors and sources of knowledge. And this, uh, her, her roundup this week was on reclaiming representation. How do we communicate? What are the patterns of storytelling, the biases that are inherent in the way we tell stories about development and change? What constitutes knowledge? Who decides? Um, particularly good set of resources, especially in the week that um, the, uh, the great Kenyan author Binyavanga Wainaina died, uh, who wrote that fantastic essay back in 2005, How to Write About Africa, which I'm thinking of reposting um, uh, in, as a tribute um, next, uh, in the next few days. Um, Tuesday, we had the result of a failed blogging class. So I did a blogging, a blogging class, you know, a beginner's guide to blogging, which I do quite often, at uh, the LSE a few weeks ago. And there were 25 people down for it, and only three showed up. Um, uh, and the reason was not that I do a really boring class, though that may well be true, but because the rest of them couldn't get visas. They were all coming for a big Africa summit event at the LSE, and they fell foul of the increasingly atrocious UK and chaotic UK visa system where people are getting rejected on totally arbitrary grounds or they get their visas after they were after the event they were supposed to attend and it's becoming just embarrassing so so obviously uh, with the three who did make it we decided we would write a joint blog about UK visas and they did really I, I quite like what they came up with so Esther Ye Mokua uh, Elizabeth Storer and Carolyn Dietler um, uh, wrote about their contrasting experiences of visas as a German, uh, uh, a Sierra Leonean and a Brit. Um, and uh, I think they came up with a rather nice piece of work. On Wednesday, <clears throat> I emerged from marking. Now, marking is one of these things that academics just complain about all the time. Um, it is intensely draining if you do it properly because you've got to be really on your game. You've got to Remember that this matters an awful lot to the people on the you know, who are going to get your comments and your marks back. You have to spot the things they haven't done, which is much, much harder than critiquing the things they have done. And it's basically a very exhausting part of the year. But it's also a really interesting feedback mechanism. Now, we get at the LSE, we get you know, evaluations from the students and they're all really positive but when you read the assignments that's when you re work when you can see what has worked and what hasn't in terms of the course and the teaching um, so I summarized um, the results of a couple of weeks pouring over the, the student assignments um, on this course which is on activism they have to come up with uh, an individual campaign that they want to run usually in their in their home country and they do the context analysis, the power analysis, come up with strategies, tactics, and so on. And then we mark them again on the quality of that campaign proposal. It's great fun, great ideas. So the blog summarizes the topics they feel passionately about and chose, and then the strengths and weaknesses of their proposals, which was more than anything just me realizing where I've got to do a better job on the teaching, where there are weaknesses, and being very pleased where there are strengths. On Thursday, we had Dixon Chibanda and Alicia London. 
um, on a issue which is just getting bigger and bigger, both in the UK uh, and in the development uh, sphere, which is mental health. Um, so mental health has always been a poor relation of physical health in terms of uh, government provision, both in the, in the rich countries and the poor. But it's particularly bad in low and middle income countries where three quarters of people with mental health conditions get no support at all. Mental health gets only 2% of government health spending and 1% of aid health spending. Um, so Dixon and Alicia are part of a global civil society campaign, Speak Your Mind, which was launched at the World Health Assembly this week, and they basically set out their stall in the blog saying why health deserves far, uh, mental health deserves far greater attention in, in, in aid and development. Then the last post of the week, Friday, was a download from a recent uh, internal Oxfam meeting where we you know, did the blue sky thing and thinking about how the world is changing, um, how INGOs like Oxfam should respond. And I was on a table on demographic shifts, which you know, the big tides of, of, of human population in terms of urbanization, in terms of rural urban migration, in terms of aging, um, and, and so we looked at a whole bunch of these and, uh, and then and I got quite interested in the discussion about what the response or lack of response tells us about INGOs. So it seems to me that INGOs have some sort of in, inherent, quite deep conservatism. You know, if you look at our, the images we paint of Africa, going back to um, Wainaina's piece on how to write about Africa, we paint a picture of either rural misery or rural bliss, but we like rural. We don't, we don't paint many pictures of urban, even though so many more people are moving into the cities now. So this conservatism, this peasant romanticism, I think it stops us embracing change. We fear change, we resist change, we want to keep things how they were, maybe a bit better. Suppose we embraced change, if we actually looked for how these demographic shifts are happening and jumped into them. Um, an example, you know, at the moment we do a lot of work in rural uh, settings trying to improve yields, trying to make farming more viable, and try as we might, in many places, young people are still leaving. Um, you know, the, 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 the farming population worldwide is getting older and older. So why, what about, maybe not instead, but in addition, thinking how do we make that rural urban migration more decent, more humane? You know, in the 19th century, U, um, US uh, philanthropists used to meet migrants off the docks um, you know, and, and give them a, a bed for the first couple of nights and help them get set up. That kind of approach to, to, to helping ease the pain of some of these shifts, it would be a really different mentality to resisting them, which I think we do a lot of the time. Second thing we could do is actually, you know, these are creating new constituencies. Migration is creating powerful, both financially and politically, financial uh, uh, diasporas uh, around the world. Um, new urban social movements, uh, you know, new movements of older people, um, which have certainly seem to have taken over in, in the UK. Um, are we really identifying and supporting these new constituencies or are we sticking with the people we know already? bearing witness to impacts, you know, that these big shifts have unintended consequences, they have winners and losers, um, we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we should just get better at spotting what's happening and telling it as soon and as early as we can detect it so that policymakers and others can start to respond and make sure, uh, yeah, and improve the quality of those demographic changes, the human impact of them. One of my slightly 
tangential hobby horses is, you know, I'm really worried about geoengineering, for example. So geoengineering, okay, it's not a demographic shift, but it's a response to a big global change. Um, and it's where, you know, um, you use big experiments with the, with the planet's climate to do things like um, reflect sunlight back into space or absorb carbon dioxide in the oceans. I'm really worried that if this goes ahead as a kind of Dr. Strangelove science-only discussion, we'll realize far too late that the impact it's having on poor people and poor and, and less powerful communities is, could be really disastrous. Um, so we need to think about that bearing witness role. Uh, and then finally, I think on this, you know, um, demographic shifts, these big tides create new institutions, new, new, new ways of organizing people and power. And in the early days, any, any institution is more malleable. It then sort of over time becomes fixed and acquires a constituency and a set of views and, and it becomes entrenched. So if, from an advocacy point of view, if you're an NGO working on advocacy, then early is the time to, is, is your best chance of influencing the way these institutions evolve. So maybe we should get more involved with these new institutions governing things like urbanization or, or, or aging. Or, um, and, I, and one aspect of that, which I think is really becoming increasingly important, is that the, yeah, the rise of cities as political centers. There's some really interesting work by Hugh Cole and others on uh, developmental cities and on whether you know, the city is actually a better unit of analysis in many, many cases than the nation state. How good are our NGOs at understanding and engaging with the city when our default is often either to engage at very local level or at national or global level? So maybe there's a tier there which we need to look at. Okay, that's me done. Have a good weekend, everybody, and we're back next week. Bye.